We're right in the middle now of Mark's gospel, and uh, this is perhaps one of the most significant, this week and next week are perhaps two of the most significant passages that, that we will discover and come across in all of Mark's gospel. And so I invite you to listen as we read these words, and then we will take some time to look at them together. Listen, uh, Mark 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As we continue our series through Mark, as I said, we come tonight to the central concern of the whole book. And it's the question of who is Jesus? Who is He really? And it's a question that has surfaced. It's, it sits just below the surface of this gospel from the very earliest chapters. For example, in chapter 2, after Jesus says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven... The religious leaders there watching him and hearing him say that say to themselves, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or take the disciples in chapter 4, right after Jesus calms the storm, they're terrified at what they saw and they ask, who then is this that even the wind and the, the sea obey him? Or again, a couple chapters later in chapter 6, after Jesus' name had become known, and in fact it even reached the notice of King Herod, Mark tells us that some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, but others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And then when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Even this very quick survey in these first eight chapters of Mark's gospel show us that the identity of Jesus was on everyone's mind. 
Everyone was beginning to wonder, who is this Jesus? And they were formulating their own conclusions. And in one sense, this is a story of people who, to some extent, thought they knew Jesus, only discover they had no idea. But now, in chapter 8, for the first time, Jesus reveals to us his identity as not just a king, but the king. But the reality is, he's the kind of king that no one expected. And so the question for us tonight is, how does he do this? How does he reveal to us that he is the king? And in doing so, reveal to us not just that he is a king, but he is the king that we really need. And how he does it is, first of all, I want us to see that he gives sight to the blind. And he asks questions about his identity. And then he teaches us plainly about his mission. So first, let's look in in verses 22 to 26 that... Jesus here encounters this blind man after his disciples and he have made their way to Bethsaida. And it's important to to notice and to connect this story with what came right before what we looked at last week, which was a pretty tragic story that highlighted in many number of ways the blindness of the disciples. They had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people in the middle of nowhere. And then he, they saw him do the very same thing again. He, he fed 4,000 people and they still don't understand. And you're meant to see a stark contrast between the blindness of the disciples and the sight of the blind man here in this story. And what I want you to see here is that Even as the disciples fail to see, what he does show them in this encounter with this blind man in Bethsaida, he shows them what he wants to do with them and how he cares for this blind man. Look here in verse 23. After these people, friends, presumably of this man, bring him to Jesus, look in verse 23. Mark tells us that Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. Now, it would be really easy for us to just rush right on past this, but I want you to pause with me for a minute and think about this. He takes this blind man and he leads him out of his village. Everything that's familiar to him, perhaps traffic patterns that he is aware of, or he can navigate to some degree on his own. And if you, if you are physically blind, or perhaps you might have ever known someone who is physically blind, uh, you, you have actually a distinct advantage in understanding the story. And the rest of us are at a, very, a great disadvantage. And so think for a minute, perhaps you've had to do this in school or for some experiment. Have you ever... Let someone blindfold you and lead you on a lengthy walk, not knowing where they're going to take you. It is a terrifying experience, especially if you're with a friend who has, they think, a sense of humor and think it's fun to make you run into things. And it usually hurts because you have no idea what's coming. It's scary. It requires a great deal of trust 
to let someone lead you somewhere, even when you can see where you're going, let alone when you can't. And so what I want, why I want you to not rush past this story is discovering who Jesus really is is like being led with your eyes shut. You're being led to discover and to have your eyes open to someone perhaps you've never heard about, perhaps you think you do know about, and even do to some degree. Yet Jesus here is showing us what He wants to do with us. He wants to take us by the hand and lead us to see who He really is. See, it's important to notice these details about Jesus because they are vitally important for when life is pulled apart at the seams. You need to know that this Jesus will lead you safely. That He will not run you into things. That He will lead you and then He will open your eyes. And He will help you to see Him for who He really is. But really the unique piece of this story is found in the fact that Jesus touches this man twice before His sight is restored. And then He saw everything clearly. Look to verse 23 and 25 again. Jesus, after touching the man the first time, he asks him, do you see anything? That's a rather unique question that Jesus asks. And it, in many ways, assumes that Jesus didn't expect to heal him on first touch. He asks him, do you see anything? And when the man replies, he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus touches the man a second time. And he sees everything clearly. You need to notice here that this is the only miracle in all of the Gospels that is gradual. All of the other miracles you read of are instantaneous. Jesus touches and someone is clean. He says a word and someone is raised from the dead. This is the only one... That's gradual. Now, why would he do that? Especially in this context with the disciples watching. And especially right, in, right before he reveals his true identity. You see, the point of this story is to illustrate that true spiritual understanding doesn't come instantly. It comes gradually. That Jesus leads us by the hand, as it were. It's a sign to the disciples and to us that Jesus alone must give us eyes to see and that we need Him to do that continually, deepening and sharpening our spiritual vision of Him. The greatest danger to the Christian life is when you get to a point when you think you have Jesus all figured out. This story reminds us that we can never plumb the depths of discovering who He is. That in fact, you never arrive. You continually and are utterly dependent on what Jesus says about Himself. And so this story, the purpose of it is really to prepare us for the questions that we find in in verses 27 to 33 when He speaks and asks His disciples directly about what other people are saying about him, and then, in fact, what they are saying. 
So let's look at those questions. Jesus here begins by asking his disciples as they are on the way, they're walking. And it's, it's worth me pointing out at this point, this phrase here, on the way, in verse 27, is one we'll see again and again. And it, as you look for it, repeat it again and again, all this, pretty soon you'll see that that phrase marks, Jesus is on the way somewhere, he is on the way to Jerusalem. And now Jesus is beginning to ask this most important question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets from of old. And it's probably not hard for you to notice here that if even with maybe a basic knowledge of the Old Testament, that all of these answers really amount to the same thing. That Jesus, popular opinion says that Jesus is a great prophet. He's sent by God to speak for God and to prepare the way for what God was going to do. And of course, all of that is true. We just talked about that. Those are all true for Jesus. But the question is, is that all there is to Jesus? And while Jesus doesn't comment here at this point, we need to see that in, in this first answer that the disciples give... The issue with it, the problem with it, is that it actually says nothing new. It treats Jesus like an Old Testament prophet, like what God has done already. There's nothing unique about him. And in fact, what's happening here is it may sound like a compliment, but in fact, what's happening, it's like putting Jesus into what Mark said earlier Pouring new wine into old wineskins. It's trying to understand who Jesus is based on what's already happened. Not on what Jesus is doing right now. And so instead of, as I said, making much of this, Jesus simply turns to his disciples and he asks them directly. He asks them directly, who do you say that I am? And would the disciples answer in keeping with popular opinion, or would they see something different? And Peter, here, as the first among equals with the disciples, he answers, and he says, You are the Christ. And Peter most definitely sees in Jesus someone unique. This is a breakthrough moment for for Peter and the disciples. That they now begin to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That he's been sent from God. That he is not just another prophet, but he is the prophet. And if you've been exposed to the church or even Christian teaching, even just a little bit, you're likely to read Peter's answer and think, yep, that's it. He got it. He nailed it. For once, (laughs) Peter nailed it. But before we, we go too far in that direction... I think we we need to take a moment and think for a moment, what did this mean in the first century? This idea of the Christ. What would any other disciple or first century Jew meant by that term? So first let me just briefly tell you about this. that, That this word Christ translates a Hebrew word, Messiah, which is not unfamiliar perhaps to many of us. But in the Old Testament, all that meant was to anoint. And there were 
three classes of people that got anointed. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And there really was no formal, um, absolute idea of a Messiah in the Old Testament. It just was a way that God showed that this person, a prophet, priest, or king, was selected by him to serve on his behalf. That's about as specific as we get. And so, here, that idea begins to develop. And by the time of Jesus, this idea was not just general anymore. The longing for a king had grown. A king who would again sit on David's throne. And by the time of Jesus' day, and in the lives of the disciples, this term... Christ or Messiah had come to mean not just any anointed king, but it meant the anointed one. That there was, in the, in the popular mindset, that God was going to send the Messiah, the anointed one. And another, Peter here uses this word to identify Jesus. What he's saying is, you are the final prophet. You are the great king. You are the Messiah, the one through whom God would establish and protect an everlasting kingdom that would never end. And we even get the sense that of what the disciples thought it meant for Jesus to be the Christ after his resurrection in Acts 1 when they ask him in chapter 1. He says, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? But you need to hear what they're asking. And what they thought it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah and to call him the Christ. Their expectation was that Jesus, as the Messiah, God's chosen king, that he would come in power. That he would come in might. That he would come in strength to deliver God's people from foreign rule. From the Romans. From their occupation of Israel, God's land, and God's place. And the question is, is that what Jesus means by this? And before we move on to see that, I want us to think for a moment about what do, what do these answers, what do we see about these answers that they give to these questions that perhaps show up in our lives today? Let me try to, to put it to you like this. On the one hand, many people respect and admire Jesus and his teachings. They have no problem with the suggestion that Jesus was a historical figure, that he really did live, uh, that he was a great moral teacher, that in some sense even he speaks for God. And certainly he's a, an amazing, incredible example that if we actually followed him, the world would be a much better place. And on the other hand, there are many people, and I think this particularly would apply to church people, religious people, that Jesus is a great king who has come to fix those people out, out there who don't do what we do, don't believe what we believe, He's come to fix those people out there and to stop whatever is going on in the way and getting in the way of his plans and his people. 
And whether we realize it or not, this, this latter view is actually not too far from what Peter means when he calls Jesus the Christ. And so in, in order to deal with this, these replies, Jesus makes a rather interesting comment. He, he, he strictly charges them not to say anything. Well, why would he say that? I think the only answer to that comes in the next several verses because Jesus had to teach them. They were so close in some ways, and yet, as we will see, they were so far from understanding what Jesus means by the Christ. And so Jesus begins to teach his disciples, and he teaches them with a statement that, as we will see, must have left his disciples dumbfounded. It had absolutely no resemblance to the idea of the Christ that we've been talking about so far. Look what he says in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. I want to point out a few things to help you to see this. First of all, notice what he does. He does not refer to himself as the Christ, like Peter did and the disciples Instead, he substitutes this phrase, son of man. Now, it's, it's worth noting that in Mark's gospel, this phrase, son of man, it occurs twice as many times as the title Christ. And in fact, this is the only the second time since verse 1 of chapter 1 that Mark uses the term Christ. But son of man is Jesus' favorite term to use to describe who he is. And so what we see him doing here is he is not rejecting this idea that he is the Christ. He wants to completely redefine it. And to do so, he uses this phrase, Son of Man, which is taken from Daniel chapter 7, which we read from earlier. And in Daniel chapter 7, we read of a divine figure, a king who comes before the ancient of days, which is another way of describing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here is this divine figure, figure who comes before the ancient of days and he receives a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will span the nations. And it will never end. Sounds very similar to this idea of the Christ. But Jesus picks up this idea of Son of Man in order to begin to rewire, to redefine who He really is. So He uses this term, Son of Man, but then notice right with it, He joins up to this idea of the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must suffer. Here, Jesus picks up on not only this term, Son of Man, but also a theme in the Old Testament that nowhere is associated with this idea of the Messiah, that the Messiah must suffer. And there's nowhere more clear in the Old Testament than Isaiah 52 and 53 that God speaks about his servant, a servant who must suffer. Listen to what we read there. And Isaiah describing the suffering servant that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the picture of the suffering servant that Jesus brings in connection with the Son of Man. And taken together, Jesus is teaching his disciples and us who he really is. He is saying, yes, I am God's only chosen king. I am the Son of God, come to do His will and to make all things new, to bring a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And this kingdom will never, ever end. But the way I will do that will be nothing like you expected. And it will work unlike anything you have seen. It is completely foreign to the way the world operates. It's completely different than the way you and I think about our lives and in fact long for our lives to go. You see, despite Jesus, as Mark says here, he explained this to them plainly. Despite doing that, we only need to look at Peter's response to see how outrageous this must have sounded. It challenges everything Peter and the other disciples thought they understood about God and His ways in the world. Peter says, in verse, Mark tells us in verse 32, that he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him. That must have been a sight. Peter rebuking Jesus about who the Messiah is. And as if Jesus wasn't up for the task... Here we find perhaps one of the most shocking and embarrassing statements in all of Scripture. Where Jesus turns to Peter and also to all of his disciples, which is Mark's way of saying they all are in with Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is quite a duel happening between Jesus and Peter. Jesus here, he responds to Peter with the strongest rebuke you could possibly give. And why does he do that? Why does he leave nothing in the bag, as it were, to call Peter and the disciples out? I think the answer is fairly simple. The disciples' agenda for Jesus, it didn't include suffering at all. They wanted a Messiah who wouldn't have to suffer. Because what that means is they wouldn't either. And as we'll see next week, you can't have Jesus as your Messiah and not suffer with Him. To call Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah, means you will have to follow Him. You will have to take up your cross 
even as he has, and follow after him. You see, they thought that the Messiah would come and deal with what was wrong with the world and then the way the world deals with it. But Jesus says no. The ways of God turn the ways of the world upside down. There is no other way for the kingdom to come than through suffering. As Jesus is saying here about himself. He says the Son of Man must suffer. It's not an accident. It's not because Jesus isn't strong enough to change things. It's not because God made a mistake and this is now plan B and he's trying to uh, find the eject button. This is a divine must. Jesus' definition of who he is and and his mission here is not a mistake. It is exactly according to God's intention. It's the only way God can remain both perfectly just on the one hand and perfectly merciful on the other hand, and not end us in the process. So I want to finish looking at this passage with you by highlighting just three reasons why this Jesus is the only Jesus that you need. And he's the only Jesus that will ever do you any good. See, when we trust Christ, when we embrace his identity his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, it fundamentally changes the way that you relate to yourself, fundamentally changes the way you relate to other people, and last, it fundamentally changes the way that you relate to God. First, let's look at how does this change the way that we relate to ourselves? Knowing Jesus as our suffering king changes the way we relate to ourselves. How does that happen? You see, what you need, what I need, is that we need to see and to know how it is that you can be fully loved and accepted by someone who knows all of your shame, who knows all of your guilt, and will not walk away. See, for many of us, loving other people or receiving love is fraught with fear and anxiety. What if I am rebuffed? How can I know this person won't reject me once they get to know the real me? How can I know they won't just use me and then leave me? You see, the cross of Jesus tells you God is not interested in getting something from you or manipulating you. The cross tells you that when you put your faith in Jesus, he will never reject you. Because he was rejected for you on the cross. Because Jesus is our suffering king, we are now loved and accepted by the one whose opinion really matters. Knowing Jesus as your suffering king changes the way you think about yourself. But second, knowing Jesus as our suffering king changes the way that we relate to other people. To believe the Son of Man must suffer for you means coming to terms with the idea that there is something so profoundly wrong with you that someone had to suffer and die in order to rescue you. When that sinks in, it is profoundly humbling. There is no way that can begin to take root in your life and it not begin to break apart pride and how deeply lodged it is in our hearts. And that something that bad is 
deeply wrong with us that someone had to rescue us. Or let me put it more positively. To trust Jesus as our suffering king is to believe that you are a sinner saved by grace alone. It can't be earned. It's a free gift. And you have exactly the qualifications to receive that gift. And when that kind of grace grips your heart, you will never look at other people the same way. It's impossible to look down on other people when you know you've been saved by sheer grace and not by what you've done. And when you take that teaching in the very center of your life, something supernatural and life-changing takes place. The pride and the self-righteousness, the fear and the insecurity, the superiority or the inferiority, they start to get pulled out of your life. Grace pulls those things out of your heart and replaces them with humility and confidence in Jesus. But third, knowing Jesus as our suffering king changes the way we relate to God. Again, remember what Jesus said in verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer. That teaches that we must experience God's forgiveness. However, to do so requires that we understand that forgiveness always requires the offended party to absorb the cost of what we did wrong. Forgiveness is always costly. It cannot be ignored or downplayed. True justice demands a payment. So, for example, if I crash into a friend's car, there are only two options. Either I pay the cost to fix the car, or my friend must absorb the cost and pay to fix it, or go without a car. It cannot be ignored or just swept under the rug. And the same is true for our relationship with God. Therefore, if as the Bible claims, we have violated God's law, there is no turning back. There is no making up for making up for it without paying the cost for the offense. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's the cost for forgiveness. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I must suffer for you. Either you must pay the penalty for sin or I must. On the cross, we see God in Jesus absorbing the penalty of our sin and in so doing, restoring our relationship with God. It's this teaching that Jesus gives to the disciples that He is the Son of Man who must suffer many things that they're totally unprepared for. And I think if we're honest, the, the, the deeper He takes us into who He really is, again and again, this Messiah, this Jesus, challenges us to rethink who we are and who He is. So let me just ask you, are you beginning to see how absolutely necessary it is to get Jesus' identity right. Let me give you a simple test. If you come to Jesus and you say, I'll obey you if, and you fill in that blank, I'll obey you if, you still are not recognizing him to be the king. You're merely using him as a means to some other end. You're still, you are still the king in your life. But remember, Jesus isn't the kind of king anyone expected, even those closest to him. 
And at some level, that's all of us, Christian or not. We all need Jesus to lead us by the hand every day to discover afresh and in deeper ways what kind of king he really is. That he's a suffering king. That he is a king on a cross who gave up everything so that you and I could have everything. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to see Jesus for who he really is. We pray that you would, you would humble us, that you would lead us by the hand, that by your spirit as you work through your word and as we worship together, you would peel back those layers in our hearts that resist this message and really would much rather prefer a strong, powerful, conquering Savior. But that's not who we find in Jesus. And in fact, that's actually really good news. Because through His suffering, you in fact bring to an end all that is wrong. And through His resurrection, you begin again. And you give us hope to see and to know that as things are now, they will not always be. For you will come back and one day you will make all things new. Please help us to wait and to trust and to follow. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.